I have really fond memories uh, with the song you just sang, uh, As the Deer. Uh, I remember once I, I was uh, leading a uh, fellowship retreat in Cedar Spring. Um, and I was sharing this song and, and the corresponding Psalms 42 and 43. And after I finished sharing, uh, somehow we looked out from the window and we saw two deers. They were drinking uh, at the pond. Uh, it was such a nice, wonderful picture that God has imprinted in my mind since then. Uh, it's just like... Today I'm going to talk about the sixth sign, which is about um, the healing of a blind man, of a man born blind. And then, during the, the, the singing time, I, I, I just... Actually, the uh, community announcement time... Then I realized you guys have really good eyes. When, when I look at the bulletin, it was like font five or something. You know, I was trying to do this to enlarge it, but, but I can't. It's not an iPad. Wow, you guys can read it. So, you guys have amazing eyes. Anyway, consumerism is an invisible force that is more powerful than we are aware of. It shapes our mindset, our thought process, the way we communicate, and the way we set our priorities. And this force of consumerism is so subtle and so blended into our culture and our daily lives that we are very much under its influence without really realizing it. One thing that consumerism is shaping us it's by the concept of sales and marketing. In sales and marketing, the goal is to get the potential customer to buy your product or your service. And as a result, based on human psychology, emphasis will always be put on benefits of the product or service. Oh, I'm not saying this is anything wrong you know, with this, because... They want to appeal to your desire first so that you would think the product or the service is worth the money you're paying for. That's fair. I don't know whether you have such experience like I did. When someone keeps on ignoring your question about the price and keeps talking about how good the product is, like I have had this experience before and it, it just drove me nuts. I mean, I, I don't look like someone who do not care how much I pay. But still, the concept is there. Emphasis is on the benefit. While the cost will be told after you already show interest to commit. That's why Apple is so successful. The company creates a need for the general public and fills the need with its product. That's why they can charge a premium price because consumers are so overwhelmed by the product's benefits. And again, emphasis is always on the benefit. Unfortunately, this kind of sales and marketing strategy has greatly influenced the way Christians carry out evangelism. And this is very unfortunate. Sometimes we kind of like selling Jesus or Christianity to our prospects telling them how good it is to become a Christian. 
that there will be eternal life, that Jesus is your friend and will help ease your stress and anxiety, that kids who grow up in church tend to better behave, tend to, And sometimes, like Christian is a better girlfriend or boyfriend. I'm sure you have heard of something similar, if not the same. Again, emphasis is on benefit. And this is very unfortunate, I say again. Do you know how the first century Christians evangelized their neighbors? Of course, they would tell them that sins can be forgiven and eternal life can be obtained. But emphasis was almost always on cost. Like, if you become a Christian, you might lose your job tomorrow. That your kids might be denied to go to school. That you might be persecuted because you must not worship the Roman Caesar. And that you might die because tribulations were underway. In the ancient time, emphasis was almost always on cost. Let's see how Jesus evangelized. When a person said, Teacher, I want to follow, follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Again, when a rich man, rich young man, came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Jesus told him, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And Jesus told everyone who wants to follow him and to be his disciples, he said this, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Again and again, emphasis is on cost of discipleship. That's why many of the early Christians were very bold and, and loyal witnesses to Christ because they fully understood what it took to be a Christ follower. But somehow, during the last 2,000 years, things have changed dramatically. Evangelism is swaying away from making disciples to making customers. What's in it for me has become a guiding principle, even in church. This is deadly wrong. And today... We are going to examine the sixth sign of Jesus in John's Gospel. And we are going to be confronted by the very reality of what it takes to be a faithful follower of our Lord Jesus Christ. This sixth sign has a very unique feature among all seven signs in which Jesus is virtually absent in most of the narrative. The spotlight of this passage is directed to one person who has decided to follow Jesus at all costs. Now let us take a look at the first part of this long passage, John chapter 9, verse 1 to 14, and I'm going to ask Verna to read it for us. So 
from chapter 9, verse 1 to 14 from John. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am this man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. Let us pray together. Spirit of the living God, we give thanks to you that you have inspired John, disciple of Jesus, to record this wonderful sign that Jesus has performed into his gospel. And today we ask that your spirit will guide us to realize that this sign is true. And this sign is telling us what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. Please guide us with your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this sixth sign of Jesus in John's Gospel deals with the healing of a man born blind. In this sign, it is not difficult to see its association with the self-proclamation of Jesus, which he also made in this passage. In verse 5, you just, uh, Werner just read, Jesus said, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus claimed that he is the light of the world, which John already made known to his readers in the very beginning of his gospel, when he said in chapter 1, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then, in chapter 8, which is right before today's passage. Jesus said, once again, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In order to present that the Messiah has brought light into darkness, there's nothing else better than healing the blind. That's why Jesus was so proactive in seeking out and healing this blind man before his time has come. This miracle of restoring vision for the blind has always been a sign of the arrival of the Messiah in the Old Testament time. In Isaiah 29, it indicates to us how Jews in the Old Testament anticipated their Messiah. It says, in the day... The deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. And also in Isaiah 42, I will take hold of your hand, I will keep you, and will make you to be a covenant for the people, 
and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind. As you can see, God has through prophet Isaiah foretold a sign of the coming Messiah, which is the miracle of restoring vision for the blind. As clearly as it was foretold in the book of Isaiah, when Jesus actually performed such a sign of healing a man born blind, it was not that everyone would automatically recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. Quite the contrary. The clearer the sign Jesus performed, the higher the tension between Jesus and the Jewish leaders has become. The clearer the sign became, the more they wanted to get rid of Jesus. A group of Jewish leaders who had sound vision had become blind in front of the divine sign of the Messiah in Jesus. The passage today begins with a question from, the, from Jesus' disciples. They ask, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. So notice that this question of the disciples had a built-in assumption in which blindness of this man is because of sin, whether it's his own or his parents. And this is a common conception in the society of Jesus' days. For Jews, they believed that serious uh, disabilities such as blindness, deafness, muteness, leprosy, or immobility were all results of sin. As a result, people with disabilities in Jesus' day would not only suffer from their physical impairment, they would also suffer greatly from being ostracized socially and religiously. In those days, there were even people shouting out God's righteousness when they encountered someone with, with disability on the street. They would say, praise the Lord for being justice. Now you can imagine how enormously a person, a disabled person or his family suffered in those days. But then there was Jesus, who unquestionably denied that physical impairments must be direct result of sin. He denied it. He said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. The phrase works of God here is equivalent to the word sign, a revelation. So here, God wanted to give the world a sign through this man who was born blind. The scripture has told us that this sign happened on Sabbath day. And it took place in Jerusalem. The background of this sign is very similar to that of the fourth sign when Jesus healed a lame man. Both signs dealt with a long-term disability. The lame man had been immobile for 38 years and this blind man has been blind since he was born. Both happened in Jerusalem and both took place on Sabbath day, also, both involved a pool as a healing medium. The lame man was waiting beside the pool of Bethesda. And this blind man was sent to the pool of Siloam. But although there are many similarities between these two signs, one major difference between them was the reaction of the healed man. After the lame man was healed and he could... Picked walking, 
There were no signs of appreciation. And worse, he then ran to the Jewish leaders to preach on Jesus so that he could avoid trouble. On the contrary, the blind man in, the sign, in this sign we're studying today demonstrated what it takes to be a true follower of Jesus. But before we look at the blind man's reaction after being healed, let's take a look of the healing process that took place between Jesus, the healer, and the blind man. First, the whole healing process was surrounded by the theme of light and darkness. Blindness is obviously a form of darkness. And its healing means light has been restored. So in verse 4, Jesus continued to apply this contrast of light and darkness by contrasting day and night. And this whole compare and contrast between light and darkness aims at showing that Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus wanted to use this sign to show the world that he is the way to leave darkness. But unfortunately, such light was not very welcomed by his people. Another indication of people rejecting light is when people reject the one, the Messiah that was sent from God. As a result, being sent forms another parallel theme along with light. Light is the one being sent. Jesus said, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Later, Jesus sent the blind man to the pool of Siloam to wash his eyes. But the most prominent feature in this passage that highlights the theme of being sent is the name of the pool, Siloam, which means being sent. The reference of the name Siloam is actually very interesting and meaningful. This is the the map. This is, this is the, the city of David. This is Jerusalem. This is where the pool of Siloam is. This name existed during the time of King Hezekiah in about early 7th century BC. When Hezekiah was in power, he built a substantial water tunnel under the city of David. This is the water tunnel right here. The tunnel flew from the Gihon Spring right here which is located in the upper city, down to the pool of Siloam. As a result, the name Siloam means that it is sent from above. Jesus sent the man to the pool of Siloam to wash his eyes in order to signify that Jesus himself is the one sent from above. Therefore, combining the theme of light and the theme of being sent, we can get the message that believing in Jesus as the Messiah who was sent from God above, we will be able to leave darkness and enter into light. On the other hand, rejecting Jesus as the one sent from above will mean that you are still in the dark. After this blind man was healed near the pool of Siloam, Jesus was long gone. Like he, he was not there anymore. And from then on, for the next 27 verses, the spotlight is on the healed blind man. 
First, the scripture mentioned that those who had known this blind man found out that he could now see. Then they asked him what happened. And to his best knowledge, the human said, The man, they called Jesus, made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. But he only knew that his healer was someone who was called Jesus. Probably he knew this because Jesus told him. But he did not know who Jesus really was, and he did not know where he he went. Then, this group of people brought this man to the Jewish leaders, and precisely a group of Pharisees. Well, seeing Pharisees is never a pleasant thing in John's Gospel. So while in the midst of a group of Pharisees, what this healed man, healed blind man received was not congratulations or celebrations. Rather, all he got was interrogation. The first round of interrogation is found in verse 15 to 17, and it goes like this. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. But the Pharisees' accusation against Jesus was here. It's the same as the one that we found in the fourth sign of healing the lame man, which is on Jesus violating Sabbath tradition. During the process of restoring vision for this blind man, Jesus violated at least three customs of Sabbath. First, although Sabbath does not strictly prohibit uh, 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 healing or, or, or performing treatment, its custom only allowed medical attention to be paid on emergency and fatal condition. This blind man has been blind since he was born. So we ask, why not Jesus waited one more day, like until the next day when Sabbath is over, then he go treat him. Why not he waited? Second violation that they accuse Jesus of is that kneading mud or, or flour is prohibited on Sabbath. Don't ask me why. It's just the wrong thing to do on Sabbath. Well, we, we know that Jesus can heal anyone from any sickness by any method he likes. Right? Like saying a word from far distance and the problem is gone instantly. But he deliberately chose to mix some mud with his holy saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Well, this is a direct challenge on Sabbath custom. And third, the Jewish custom prohibited putting things like ointments or paste on eyes during Sabbath. And I don't know why. But again, Jesus chose to go against this custom. As a result, how would the, the Jewish leaders let Jesus off the hook this time? There's no way they would let him off the hook. So as a result, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, came up with a conclusion 
That since Jesus violated Sabbath's custom, he cannot be from God. He cannot be the Messiah sent from above. Even though he had performed signs that matched Isaiah's prophecy, turning the blind into sight. Even though there were a few among the Pharisees who thought Jesus might be divine, but they did not represent the thought of the mainstream. Since Jesus was not there, the only thing the Pharisees could do was to attack the testimony of the healed blind man. Therefore, they continued to threaten the man as they interrogated him. They asked him, What have you to say about him, about Jesus? And at this point, the healed man somehow expanded his knowledge about Jesus and called him a prophet. Remember at first, the man called his healer the man they called Jesus. But after a round of interrogation by the powerful Pharisees, this man did not back down. And to the contrary, he called Jesus a prophet. Well, the word prophet can simply mean the messenger of God or the representative of God. But most importantly, a prophet must be from God. The man called the blind man called Jesus a prophet. Although it's not the most appropriate title, he was already and intentionally challenging the point of view of the powerful Pharisees. He was going head on with the elites. The Pharisees said Jesus must not be from God. The healed blind man who was a beggar by profession called Jesus a prophet. In this awkward situation, the Pharisees decided to continue to attack the credibility of the, of the blind man by going after his parents. So they summoned his parents as a pair of witnesses. This round of examination is found in verse 18 to 23. And it goes like this. They still did not date the Pharisees, did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered. And we know he was born blind. But how can he see now or who opened his eyes? We don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That's why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. But first we notice that this trial is unfair and unjust because the Jewish leaders had decided the verdict before even examining the witnesses. They decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be penalized. And the penalty is to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, this was not a fair trial. What the Pharisees wanted was not truth, but blind allegiance. They were not seeking righteousness, but self-interest. They threatened that anyone who disagreed with them would, with the with the penalty of being put out of the synagogue, which can be known as a form of excommunication. 
Well, we might not think this is such a big deal now, nowadays, because there are churches everywhere. But this was a big deal in Jesus' time. Whoever got put out of the synagogue was seen as unclean. And such unclean status would not only affect one's religious life, but also his social life, his work, his everyday life. It's because uncleanliness can be contagious when contact was made. Those who were put out of synagogue would immediately find themselves without work and without friends. Worse, it was seen as a very shameful consequence to the person and his family. Therefore, being put out of the synagogue would hurt the entire being of the person. So obviously, facing the penalty of being put out of the synagogue, the parents of the blind man put the owners back to their son in order to avoid such devastating consequence. They told the Pharisees, ask him. He's of age. He will speak of him for himself. What they are really saying is that it's none of our business. We don't want any trouble. Just go after my son. Leave us alone. Well, the parents of the blind man not only forsake their son, they also return Jesus' grace with evil. The son was born blind. Therefore, for so many years, they have been blamed for their son's misfortune. Right? People would say, it must have been their sins that their son was born blind. They have suffered all these false accusations all the years. Who vindicated them? Who said that the blindness of the man was not due to his parents' sin? Who healed this seemingly incurable blindness so that they did not need to carry this burden of being accused anymore? Who was that? It was Jesus. Because they were so afraid to pay the cost to testify for Jesus, they compromised. So after this, the Pharisees once again summoned the healed blind man for another round of interrogation. What would happen in this final round of interrogation? Well, let's take a look of verse 24 to 34. And it goes like this. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. Well, he replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind. But now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, We are this, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. This man answered, Now this is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. 
To this they reply, You are steep in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? Then they threw him out. This final round turned out to be quite a comedy. At the outset, the Pharisees gave this bottom line and said, Give glory to God by telling the truth. We know this man is a sinner. They equated glorifying God to submitting to them, to them, to their authority. It has become, well, it has come to the last chance that the healed man, healed blind man, can save himself from the devastating consequence of being put out of the synagogue. Remember, this, this blind man has spent his entire life of being ostracized by his community. Now his eyes were healed. He surely wouldn't want to be declared unclean again. All he needed to do was to admit that Jesus was a sinner, that Jesus was not from God, that he could have, then he could avoid all suffering and start to live a new life with dignity and respect. Right? But this newly healed blind beggar who was in the lowest level of the social ladder, because of the grace he has received from Jesus, he decided to fight against the most powerful elite of the society at all cost. What the healed man had been holding on firmly was an undeniable truth. I was blind, but now I see. He is holding on firmly the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, that when the Messiah came, the blind would be able to see. His healing testifies strongly that God's word has been fulfilled, that Jesus was the Messiah from God above. That's why the healed blind man became so bold even to challenge the Pharisees. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. It seems that this blind beggar knew the Old Testament even better than the educated Pharisees. So after failing to get the upper hand, the Pharisees' last strategy was to launch personal attack against this healed blind man. They call him deep in sin at birth. It means that his sin is so big that it had become irredeemable. And they threw him out of the synagogue. In other words, this man would have to continue his life of being ostracized, being disdained, or even being hated. But to his surprise, after he was thrown out of the synagogue, he would encounter the biggest blessing of his life. Because Jesus sought him out. The last line of words that came out from the man's mouth, from the healed blind man's mouth, was spoken when he worshipped in front of Jesus and he said, Lord, I believe. It hadn't been too long since the man was healed, but his knowledge of Jesus had grown substantially. From the beginning, when he called Jesus the man they called Jesus, to later, he called Jesus a prophet. To later, he said that Jesus was from God. And to now, that he worshipped Jesus and called him Lord. 
This is the first time in John's Gospel that someone worshipped Jesus as God. Brothers and sisters, this blind man has demonstrated to us what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. He was a true, dis- true disciple. He was not a customer of Jesus. A true disciple is someone who is willing to bear the cost in order to, to testify that Jesus is God. Jesus is Savior from above. And that Jesus is the only name given to mankind by which we must be saved. So brothers and sisters, remember, we are called to be disciples, not customers. It's not about me, it's not about us, but about Jesus our Lord. Do you know what it means by glorifying God? Glorifying literally means magnifying. If you want to glorify God with your lives, magnify Him. Make His name in your life as big as possible. You know, our culture everywhere is aiming at diminishing God or even eliminating God, even in Christmas. It's like never before that we, as God's people, must stand firm. Be bold. Be intentional to magnify Jesus' holy name anywhere, anytime, to anyone, at any cost. Let us all pray together. Our glorious Father, it is your amazing grace that we once were blind, but now we can see. We can see the spiritual reality that we are all sinners. But then Jesus came and took on himself all the consequence of sin. What can we say? What can we do to return your mercy and grace? God, we ask that you would strengthen us in this crooked generation. That we will be bold, fearless, and willing to make your name known, to magnify your name, so that people will, will know that only Jesus saves. Thank you, God, for listening to our prayers. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you all to stand as we sing uh, the song. I